0: The Thinking Long and Short podcast represents my opinion on financial markets, investing, economics, and politics. All information disseminated on the podcast is not investment advice. Anyone seeking financial advice should look to contact a licensed broker or industry-registered financial advisor. Thinking Long and Short is brought to you by Stay in Step, a veteran ministry podcast with Jonathan Barnes. Stay in Step is a veteran ministry designed to help active and prior service members and their families cope with their faith as they transition into and out of the military. They can provide you with encouragement and tips to thrive in life and with stories that will make you laugh and tips that you can implement into your daily lives. You can also email them with questions or for assistance at stayinstep at gmail.com. That's stayinstep, S-T-A-Y-N-S-T-E-P at gmail.com. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is also brought to you by Perfect Spiral. In Perfect Spiral, Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365-day, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. If you're a fantasy football junkie like me, you will definitely want to give this podcast a listen. They have a lot of great opinions and insights on what's going on in the sport. So give them a listen. Both of those podcasts you can find on Spotify and give them a listen. One of the other things I want to go over before I get into things is I'm in the process of starting a new asset management company. And it's going to take me a few years to get that up and running with all of the regulatory uh, hurdles that I have to go through. But one of the things that I am going to be doing is I'm going to be writing a newsletter that's a weekly newsletter and it's going to be called Thinking Long and Short, an investment professionals uh, newsletter. Now, that is part of why I am rebranding this podcast. So I'm changing the name to Thinking Long and Short. Now, nothing about the podcast is going to change in and of itself, but I'm going to be using it as a marketing effort towards the newsletter newsletter and towards the uh, eventual asset management business. Now, the newsletter is going to be for subscribers only. The subscription is going to be $10 a month. And with that, I'm going to be putting out six newsletters per week. You'll get them Monday through Friday. And then I'll also send a separate newsletter out on Friday evenings to recap the week of the, the markets and the week ahead. But with that, again, it's a $10 subscription. And the content is going to be more detailed than what you're getting in these podcasts. It is meant for uh, investment professionals, financial advisors, but anyone that has an interest in the markets can find great value from that. So if you're interested in subscribing to that newsletter, you can reach out to me at truenorthinternationalpartners at gmail.com. I'll post the link for that also in the bio and in the comments for this podcast, but you can reach out to me and I'll get you set up for a subscription. Again, it's great for investment professionals and for financial advisors to have a tool to be able to follow what's going on in the markets and keep their clients up to date. But also, it's going to be great for anyone who has an interest in the markets or investing in general. So with that, let's get into it. On Friday, we had an extremely weak market across the board The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped almost three percentage points, down 939 points on the day, the S&P 500 down 3.63% in just one day, and the real carnage was in the NASDAQ, which dropped over 4% on just one day. Now, the NASDAQ is now back in full bear market territory, and the NASDAQ has just finished its worst month since November 2008, which was in the midst of the great financial crisis. The NASDAQ is now down 17% for the year, which is the worst start to a year for the NASDAQ ever in the history of the NASDAQ. Now, aside from the NASDAQ, each of the major indices are getting clobbered as well. Mostly in Q1, a lot of the stocks that were getting clobbered were the high valuation companies, the speculative stocks, but as of April, the leading stocks that were getting killed were most of the fang names. So you think of Amazon and Google reported last week, less than expected earnings results. And both of, the, both of them had significant drops. Now, the problem with both of those businesses is that their growth projections for the future are starting to slow. And a lot of these businesses, most particularly the, the uh, fang names and a lot of the high valuation businesses that are out there. Are priced for perfection, so any problems that come out of these earnings reports for these stocks is going to lead to these stocks getting slammed again. The way Amazon and Google did last week, Amazon dropped over ten percent on the week. It was very, very bad across the board. And again, if you look at the Fang names, which mostly held up in uh, in the full year for twenty twenty one. And again, the fang names are Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. Now, out of those five, the only one that is still yet to be hit is Apple. But if you look at Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, all of those stocks are getting completely crushed over the past couple weeks. And again, they're all reporting earnings that are projecting earnings growth to start slowing and even possibly start contracting, especially for Netflix and Facebook. So we have a lot of trouble that we're heading for as we go into the trading month of May. Now, we have some economic data that's gonna come out this week, but the most important information that's gonna come out this week is on Wednesday, we get the FOMC minutes and the Federal Reserve's decision on interest rates, and also the much anticipated uh, Jerome Powell press conference that follows the release of those FOMC minutes. Now, remember, The Federal Reserve has stated in the past several weeks that it's going to start in May really with its quantitative tightening program to fight inflation. So they're going to start trying to raise interest rates and to shrink their balance sheet and contract the money supply in order to start fighting inflation and stop it from accelerating so fast. And remember, Jerome Powell has been saying about this, that the Federal Reserve is going to do this. But they are going to be data dependent on whether or not they're going to continue to do it. So in other words, if the economy starts to weaken and the Federal Reserve is in the middle of its inflation fight, they are going to continue to rely on incoming data to see if whether or not it's still appropriate to fight that inflation or if they need to stop fighting inflation and come in with more accommodative policies to help uh, bring the markets back. And again, I've been saying, but this is very, very similar To what happened in the 2018 to 2019 period, where going into 2018, the Fed was starting its rate hiking cycle and starting to raise interest rates. And they didn't get too far until the market started to get crushed. And when the stock market started to go down, Powell came out and reversed course and brought interest rates back lower to bring accommodative policy to help keep the market stabilized. And so that is what's going on here. And as long as the markets continue to get crushed the way they are, the Federal Reserve is eventually going to reverse course. But again, getting back to my main point that the Federal Reserve is stating they are going to be data dependent in their fight of inflation, they have not mentioned anything after the release of last week's Q1 GDP numbers. Now, last week, we got the first quarter's gdp numbers and the economists were expecting a rise of 1.1% for gdp and instead we got a decline a negative print of -1.4% gdp for the first quarter now the definition of a recession an official recession is two straight quarters of negative gdp prints So, in other words, we are officially halfway into a recession. Now, the Fed's entire cover for why they were going to be able to raise interest rates to fight inflation is that we have a strong economy that can handle a rise in interest rates. Well, if the economy is so strong, why did we just see a 1.4% decline in GDP? The economy is clearly not strong. The results are showing that the economy is contracting. And again, we got a lot of changes in the health of the overall economy since the GD, uh, GDP of the first quarter was printed. Because if we look at what happened in April, again, the NASDAQ had its worst month since November 2008. And that is not accounted for in the GDP uh, numbers for the first quarter. Now, the stock prices are not necessarily a part of the gdp but what they do represent is the overall health of the average american person's finances and when you start to see stocks getting clobbered the way they are a lot of americans are losing a lot of their wealth and that's in the face of rising consumer prices across the board in every industry so you have financial conditions are starting to worsen for every american Across the country. And that's with GDP already declined by 1.4% in the first quarter. So the chances that we get a negative print for GDP in the second quarter are extremely high. And I would place chances of a recession at about 90% at this point. And again, if we get a negative print for the Q2 GDP numbers coming out in a few months, That will have meant that we were already in a recession since January. And again, how is the Federal Reserve supposed to start hiking rates, right, and start tightening conditions in the credit markets while the U.S. economy is contracting? Because remember... The Federal Reserve, if they're going to fight inflation, they have to raise interest rates and shrink their balance sheet, which is going to cause bond yields to go skyrocketing, which means that asset prices like stocks and real estate have to come way down. Now, if the U.S. consumer is already struggling as it is, and they see their stock portfolios come down, and now interest rates are rising, so they can't refinance their house to extract equity out of their house or get a lower monthly mortgage payment there's no more lifelines left for the us consumer to be able to continue to spend more money to combat higher prices and everything they have to buy so if the federal reserve fights inflation they're going to weaken the us consumer even more and there's already tons of evidence that the us consumer is weakening as it is but if the federal reserve decides to provide a, a accommodative policy to help keep the markets up And to try and and provide a safety net for equities and how low they can fall, then that means inflation is going to continue to run out of control, which then means the U.S. consumer is going to weaken because they have to stretch more to buy essentials to make ends meet, which means, A, there's less money left for uh, discretionary spending and B, less money for them to invest in the markets. But if you look at the first point that they'll have in an inflationary scenario, less money for discretionary spending, that means that corporate earnings have to come down, which then is going to be bad for the markets. So either way you slice it, the Fed is going to have to pick their poison here. Either they fight inflation, which means asset prices and real estate prices will come crashing down, which will drive a huge drop in demand and slow the economy and throw it into a recession, or... They keep raising rates to fight inflation and or they don't keep raising rates to fight inflation. Inflation runs out of control. The consumer can no longer afford to spend money on anything other than essentials and corporate profits have to come down. In other words, the writing is on the wall and there's an old adage on Wall Street, sell in May and go away. And it is no more relevant than in this year where again, the consumer is weakening. Inflation is continuing to ramp out of control. Stock prices are coming down. And believe me, I'm looking at earnings reports of all these big companies that are notable names. They were the darling stocks in the COVID trade. They're reporting earnings and then immediately getting cut down 30, 40, 50%. Look at Teladoc this week, reported earnings with terrible guidance. They lost a ton of money. Stock was down over 45% after they reported earnings midweek this week, and they got crushed. The ARC Innovation names are getting crushed. You look at a lot of the consumer discretionary spending, they're reporting weaker than expected earnings. Earnings are coming down across the board. Amazon got hit hard, and there is a lot of trouble to come. And you have to read the writing on the walls here to recognize that something is drastically changing. And again, Whether the Federal Reserve decides to continue its inflation fight, we'll find out some of that this week, but one way or another, there are severe implications for people's portfolios to come. And with that, the last point that I'll make is that on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve has projected that they're going to be raising interest rates by 50 basis points. Again, that was prior to the release of the Q1 GDP numbers. So we'll see on Wednesday if they stay true to that course. If they do, and they, in fact, hike rates by 50 basis points, expect equities to get hit very hard. Gold will probably drop. The dollar will probably get a a boost. But that could be a knockout blow to equities. And again, equities are going to continue to fall until Jerome Powell decides he's going to pivot. If he decides he's going to pivot and start providing more accommodative policy for the markets. Because as I compared this situation to the 2018-2019 Federal Reserve that was trying to raise interest rates, back then, debt levels across the economy were much lower. And back then, valuations of stocks in the market were much lower as well. So if the Fed is hiking rates into this cycle, then that means stock prices have to come way, way down. With that, I want to explain again what inflation is, because I think a lot of people are getting inflation confused. And there's a reason why a lot of economists were so unprepared for the amount of inflation that we're experiencing over the past several months. Now, if you recall, when the pandemic first started, the main concern throughout mainstream economists was that we were going to have deflation in the economy and that nobody was going to be spending money. And of course, we see over the past two years how that was completely wrong. But that's because most economists don't even understand what inflation is. Most economists and most people in general believe that inflation is rising prices. That is not the case. Inflation is an expansion of the money supply. Now, what that means is we print more money to go into the economy and that bids up demand and as demand increases and the supply of goods and services either stays the same or decreases, the supply and demand curve means that prices must move up. Now, I want to explain, though, how inflation is so bad for the consumer and why it's such a problem for the economy overall. Now, if you think about inflation, right, and what money is, money is a claim on resources. So prior to a system of money the world used a barter system where if you wanted one product or service, you had to trade another product or service for that given product or service. And that was very inefficient. So we created a system of money. And what money is, is it's a representation of the amount of claims on resources you have. So if for instance, you own 1% of the entire money supply of the US economy, you have a claim to 1% of the resources that are produced within the U.S. economy. Now, when you increase the money supply, what you're doing is you're diluting the people that already own U.S. dollars. Now, think of this in terms of a business. Let's say you owned a business and you were a 50% owner and the business had 1 million outstanding shares. So you being a 50% owner of the business, you own 500,000 of the 1 million outstanding shares. Now, let's say that that business decides to issue a million new shares into the market. So now there are 2 million outstanding shares of that business. If you still own 500,000 of those shares, instead of owning 50% of the business, you now only own 25% of the business. So what that did was it diluted you out of your ownership of the business. So if you own, as an example, 1% of all of the supply of U.S. dollars in the economy and more U.S. dollars are printed, and so now you only own 0.5% of all the U.S. dollars in existence, you are diluted out of your claims on resources within the U.S. economy. That's what inflation is, and that's what it does, and that's why it's so bad for Americans Is because there's more of a money supply. And to the extent that money is printed and you don't get a share of that money, you get diluted out of the amount of resources you have a claim on. Now, the other thing I wanted to go over is how the government borrows money and how that printed money actually gets out into the global economy, because that's very confusing for most people. Most people understand that the US government borrows money, but they don't understand the process by which they do it. So, If the government wants to spend money, there are three main ways in which they can do it. One, they can do it legitimately by taxing their citizens, collecting tax revenue, and using the tax revenue in order to spend whatever money they want to spend on government programs. So in other words, if the government says, we want to establish a welfare program where we're going to pay out a million dollars, they have to tax people to collect a million dollars of tax revenue to pay for that government program. Now, if the government has a program or a set of programs and they can't collect enough tax revenue to fund those programs, they have to borrow money. That's the second way in which the government can spend money. They have to go out and borrow it. Now, the process by which they do that is the government issues U.S. Treasury bonds. Investors go and buy those U.S. Treasury bonds. And so the government gets the money from investors, the investors get the bonds, and then the government can then go and spend that borrowed money that they collected. And then obviously over time, they have an obligation to pay the bondholders back, plus the interest that is promised to them on those loans on the treasury bonds. But what a lot of people don't realize is that just because the government is looking to borrow money doesn't mean there's going to be somebody there to lend them money. And so when the government is looking to borrow all this money and there's not enough investors to be able to loan that money to the government, the government has to look to another source, another lender to get that money. And that's where we bring in the third way in which the government spends money. They issue U.S. Treasury bonds and whichever bonds are not bought up by investors, our central bank, the Federal Reserve, prints money to buy those bonds. The government gets the printed money, the Federal Reserve becomes the owner of those bonds, and then the government can go out and spend the printed money in the economy uh, however they see fit. And so that's what happens when we print money. The government gets the printed money from the Federal Reserve and gets to give it to people who then can go spend it in the economy. And so if you think of the U.S., right, what do we do to get our economy to move, The government borrows printed money, gives the printed money to U.S. citizens. The U.S. citizens use the printed money to buy goods and services that come from foreign nations, and we run trade deficits. So the government prints money, and the government and consumers in the U.S. buy products and services that come from foreign nations. The foreign nations get those U.S. dollars and those U.S. treasuries, and we get the goods and services. So we're diluting in a way where we're, we've been exporting our inflation overseas because we haven't been diluting Americans out of their claims on resources, but we've been diluting the rest of the world on their claims and resources. And some of the biggest exporting nations in the world are the Chinese, the Japanese, the UK, a lot of European nations, right? A lot of South American nations. That is where, by and large, most of the merchandise goods come from in the world to go into the U.S. So the U.S. prints money. We get all these goods and services created by other nations and we pay for them with printed money that has basically no intrinsic value. Now, the only reason that anybody else is willing to accept our U.S. dollars is one, because it's the world reserve currency. And so they know it's widely accepted throughout many different nations. But two, because the intent is that eventually, sometime in the future, they'll use those US dollars to buy goods that are created in America. Now, of course, the deeper we go into debt, the more we erode away our ability to be able to produce any goods or services. And so the further we go down this money printing path, the less likely we are to be able to build uh, to make enough goods in the future to hand out to anyone who owns US dollars in exchange for them. So in other words, you if you're if you're the Chinese and you give us give the US a bunch of goods and services, right, and they give you U.S. dollars or U.S. treasuries in return, the only reason you accept those U.S. dollars or U.S. treasuries is because you're going to use them in the future to buy goods produced in America. Now, another way in which this benefits Americans, aside from the fact that we're getting all these goods and services without producing anything in return for them, is that while foreign nations and sovereign wealth funds are holding these U.S. dollars, right, they use these U.S. dollars to buy U.S. stocks and to also buy U.S. treasuries. And so by and large, some of the biggest owners of U.S. debt and U.S. stocks in the world are foreign nations and foreign sovereign wealth funds. So because we print money, buy goods and services with it from foreign nations, and those foreign nations take those, that money and put it into the U.S. stock market, stock prices go up and Americans get wealthier from that. So you can see the whole dynamic at play here, that American standard of living is increased substantially from our relationship with all of our trading partners and from our uh, privilege of having the world's reserve currency. Now, the only question is, how long are foreign nations going to allow this dynamic to play out? Because again, from this relationship that America has with all of its trading partners, America gets all the benefits and the Chinese, the Japanese, the Europeans, the British, the South Americans, they're delaying their pleasure for a future uh, time where they're supposedly able to purchase American goods and American services. But at no point in time will they ever be able to do so because America doesn't produce any goods or services. We just go deeper and deeper into debt every year by spending printed money to buy goods and services from other nations. And that by and large is why most of the stocks in the US stock markets are growth stocks with either very little earnings or no earnings at all, because we're a very unproductive economy in and of itself. But again, when this dynamic ends and all bubbles like this bubble will come to an end, again, the bubble is in the US dollar itself. When that bubble ends, the dollar is going to stop its rise The dollar index this week traded above $103. It's at over five-year highs now. But again, when this dynamic comes to an end, the dollar is going to fall through the floor. And if the Federal Reserve, at this point moving forward, if they delay their policy to fight inflation, the rest of the world is going to take note and dump their U.S. dollars. So it is imperative for the Federal Reserve to stay on this course, and regardless of what the economic conditions are, to continue to raise rates to fight inflation. Because if they don't, no other nations are going to want to hold on to U.S. dollars anymore. And when no other nations want to hold on to U.S. dollars or U.S. treasuries, again, there's no money for the government to then borrow. There's no goods for the U.S. to buy from other foreign nations if they don't want to accept our paper. So we've been flooding the global economy with US dollars. And again, that is eventually going to come to an end, especially if the Fed even thinks about stopping its inflation fight to try and patch up the markets in the US. And this is a time bomb that is ticking and going to explode very quickly. Now, again, moving into this week, it's very important to see we have a lot of companies that are going to report earnings that are very, very dependent on uh, on discretionary spending, some of which DoorDash, Caesars, Square, uh, Airbnb, right, Shopify. A lot of companies are reporting earnings this week that are going to show how strong or unstrong the consumer is. And again, based on the declining GDP in the first quarter and based on how poorly stocks are performing in the US, I would have to come to believe that a lot of the wealth effect that has occurred over the past decade is now reversing itself, which means consumers are going to get tighter on their spending. And as food prices, energy prices, materials prices continue to rise, Americans are going to be spending more and more money on essentials and have less and less money available for consumer discretionary goods. And that is a very bad sign if the Federal Reserve thinks that we have a strong economy and thinks that it's going to be able to easily raise rates without destroying the markets. Again, the NASDAQ just had its worst December or had its worst month since November of 2008. And the Federal Reserve hasn't even raised rates above uh, one quarter of 1% yet. So once rates really start to climb and stock prices really start to come down, Americans are really going to be struggling to make ends meet and to stretch to buy the things that they need and so that is very, very bad news for the markets anyway, we short podcast today we also had the Berkshire Hathaway meeting annual meeting this weekend and uh, you know this is really a an American treasure uh, it pains me to say, but any year could be the last year for for these meetings because Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are getting older and older but you know, so many American investors and, and global investors flock to Omaha every year to see this event. Um, you know, there there were a couple notable uh comments that I wanted to just hit on briefly. Um one, um Warren Buffett over the, the first quarter uh bought a lot of occidental petroleum and he increased Berkshire Hathaway stake in Chevron. Uh, Chevron is now the fourth highest holding of Berkshire Hathaway. Now, it's important to understand that Warren Buffett likes to just invest in good businesses and he really looks to examine business fundamentals. But believe me, he's not making this big of a bet on oil companies if he's not bullish on oil over the long term. So I think it's important to take note of that. And Occidental is actually the the best performing stock in the S&P 500 year to date, up over 90% year to date, actually. Um, energy companies have been consolidating lately as the price of oil has been trading within a range of about $98 to $105 per barrel. But again, I expect that breakout to occur in the second half of this year. Oil could trade potentially to 150 or even to $200 per barrel. Again, remember, it's been rising in the face of a rising dollar. And a rising dollar is a huge headwind for oil. So once the dollar cracks and starts to fall, oil prices are going to have a lot of room to run. The other comment that I wanted to go over is a lot of people have been posting this, but just like every year in recent years, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were asked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Uh, Warren Buffett made a comment that he wouldn't buy Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin in the world for $25. And it's a very important point because, and he hit the nail right on the head Because if he owned all 21 million Bitcoin, what worth would they have? They would be worthless, right? There's no reason to have all the Bitcoin in the world because if you did, no one else needs any Bitcoin, right? People could just create a different cryptocurrency that they could use supposedly as money. And so it just shows that there is no intrinsic value in Bitcoin in and of itself. Now compare that. Imagine if someone bought all of the oil in the world and there was no more oil in the ground to drill. Right, If you owned all of the oil in the world, people would have no choice but to pay you whatever price you wanted for your oil because it's needed in all sorts of industries. So that's what separates Bitcoin, which people want to market as a commodity, from other commodities such as oil or gold or copper or uh, wheat, soybeans, coffee, right? real commodities have real intrinsic value. Bitcoin has zero intrinsic value, which is why if someone had all 21 million of them, they would be completely worthless. And again, Bitcoin has all the characteristics of a pyramid scheme. That's exactly what it is. And if you think about what a pyramid scheme is, it can be defined as a fraudulent system of making money based on recruiting an increasing number of investors where older investors are paid from the money coming in from new investors. That's what Bitcoin is. Like it or not, that's exactly how it functions. The only way you make money in Bitcoin is you have to buy it and then find someone else who's willing to buy it at a higher price than you to get in after you, and that's how you get out. And the only reason anyone would buy it at a higher price than you did is because they think they're going to find another person after them to buy it at an even higher price. That is literally a pyramid scheme. And you know what? If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and acts like a duck, it's a duck. So I'll leave it at that. Let's see what the Federal Reserve does on Wednesday. I'll have a podcast probably Wednesday or Thursday to examine what goes on in the markets and what the Federal Reserve decides to do on Wednesday and how Powell's press conference goes after the FOMC minutes. That's all for now.